This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew we're trying out the new style trying out some different word emphasis this week it's gonna be really weird but i think maybe we'll discover some new ways of speaking that are fun time to listen to to look at language a different way on the podcast yes and what is this podcast about no, but it's about books. Um, each week, one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. Uh, and you, the listener, get to follow along. Uh, we've usually never read these books before. I, I don't feel like I say that enough in the opening. We almost never, like, sometimes the person who didn't read the book for the show has read the book before, but almost, almost always, never. It is a book that is that is new to. Both of us, one of us, if not both of us. Yes. So this week I read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a Patreon recommendation from Robin. Thank you, Robin. A number of people have also emailed in uh, requesting this like over the years. Robin did not provide any additional information other than please read this book. So, uh, And it was like one that I knew we should get to. I honestly don't know that I knew what the heck it was about. Like... It was just about oh, a, a book tree. about New York. Tree in Brooklyn, yes. Beloved. I knew that it was beloved. I didn't know why. I just... Sure. People liked it. Um, hey, you have never read this book, correct? No, I've never read it. I, I just was... So it, the, the tree that is growing in Brooklyn is like one of those unkillable city weed trees that like just pops up everywhere. It pops up in like the the corner between your house and the in the sidewalk it shows up in like empty lots it shows up all over the place correct and i know that in the book it's like a metaphor <laughs> about the tenacity of the human spirit <laughs> but as a homeowner and city dweller like i hate these trees oh yeah i hear you there's a tree i hate these there's one in our neighbor's yard that i'm really worried is going to start like shooting roots into our basement and I would both have to pay like thousands of dollars and talk to a stranger yes. to get rid of it. The two and hurdles. Both of those things feel equally impossible to me. Yeah, there is a there is one of those trees. I don't know if it's explicitly the Ilanthus altissima, also known as the tree of heaven or the varnish tree. Uh, yeah, the ones that grow all over Philly aren't aren't quite this no. one. But they're similar in character. There is one behind my house that any stiff breeze, I'm worried that it's going to tear out the entire block's cable and or power. <laughs> it's uh-huh. a nightmare. And they're also, I don't know if this is new during quarantine, but there's about 30 birds that love to live in that tree at 9 a.m. and scare the crap out of me. Because huh. they all hang out. It's too many birds near a person. <laughs> While I'm drinking my coffee. Too many birds. Too many birds. This is my review of the tree behind my house. (laughs) Um, So we will talk about this book. We'll talk about what happens in this book. But first, Andrew, we should probably talk about Betty Smith. What do we know about Betty Smith? We know that Betty Smith was born in 1896 and died in 1972. And like all people from Brooklyn, she is the most famous for talking about Brooklyn. (laughs) Uh, she was born in the Williamsburg neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, her f- family moved all over the place and is what the book is about. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how like detailed her recall is and how that's one of the things that people praise about the book is just its its sense of place and like preserving that area at that time. Mm. Um, though she showed her interest in writing from an early age, her, inter- her education was interrupted a few times. She never ended up graduating from high school because she had to take a day job to help her family out instead they 
they w- did not have a lot of money like ever, nope. which is another thing that the book is sort of about. Um, so she did end up taking a journalist. So she got married in 1919, I think, to a guy who gave her his last name, Smith, which she continued to use throughout her uh, career, even though they divorced before this book even came out. Um, but sh- they moved to uh, Michigan and she took playwriting classes at the University of Michigan uh, without ever actually graduating. Um, and uh, as a as a student there, she won a university award for a play that she wrote that included uh, Francie Nolan, who would go on to become the protagonist of True Girls in Brooklyn. Yep. Um, the sources differ on which play it was that she won the award <laughs> yeah. for and the amount of money that she won <laughs> for it, which seems, I don't know. It seems like pretty concrete facts. You should it be seems able to like the out. university of Michigan and Ann Arbor should be able to like, look at that. Up. <laughs> they cut a check. Come on. Um, and then she also, uh, after she won that award and got some attention, she studied drama at Yale for two mm-hmm. years. But because she didn't graduate from high school, she didn't have her bachelor's. And because she didn't have her bachelor's, she couldn't get her master's. So she did. My understanding is she did the amount of work that you would need yes. to get an MFA from Yale. Which is pretty prestigious. And, and yeah, I and mean, because she didn't have a high school diploma, she didn't technically get it. Um, so, yeah, she wrote a total of four novels um, throughout her career. She started she got started a little bit late, but um so Tree Grows in Brooklyn was the first, was published in 1943. Uh, Tomorrow Will Be Better was published in 47. Um, and then there's a gap. And then Maggie Now was published in 1958. And Joy in the Morning was published in 1963. Um, there are a few different adaptations of Tree Grows in Brooklyn. There's a film in 1945 that's pretty well regarded. There's a TV movie in 1974, and then there's a musical in 1951, yeah. which uh, centers around a more minor character in the book, Aunt Sissy. Oh, whoa, um, really? The musical was kind of refactored to be more about Aunt Sissy because she was played by then star and like comedian Shirley Booth. Yo, Aunt and Sissy the does putting- rule though. <laughs> And and the people putting the musical up wanted to highlight her instead, so everybody else kind of got short shrift in that musical, <laughs> which I kind of like. There, there's a um, there's a like a afterward I think by one of her daughters um, in the back of this edition that Smith's. I that I have um, Smith's daughters. What one of Smith's daughters? Yes, not Shirley okay. Boots. Um, okay. That is uh, like about how she always wanted to write a play that would make it on Broadway or in New York. And like this is essentially as close as she got because she was writing plays her entire career um, that did get produced and some of them didn't. But apparently the Aunt Sissy musical version of this book is the one that got picked (laughs) up. But what are you going to do? The other thing I found about this book, Andrew, that was kind of neat is that it was apparently very popular during World War II like this book got instant notoriety and acclaim yeah it was it was very well reviewed i have that it uh, sold 300,000 copies in its first 6 weeks That's a lot. and by the time yeah it's a lot and by the time uh, betty smith died in 72 it had been through 37 printings and had sold 6 million copies Yo! This is according to a new york daily news piece that i oh that i found I, so. I so i found this um NPR interview with Molly Guptal Manning in 2014, who had written a book called When Books Went to War, which is about a whole bunch of paper books in the armed services editions. And they were sent to troops in Europe and other, you know, in, and in the Pacific uh, American troops. And they were like these like really thin paper, like paperback editions. And apparently this was one of the most popular books and there's this story of like a 20 year old Marine, like saying that this like moved him to tears and he thought that he wasn't human anymore because of the horrors of war. And like sure. he couldn't he couldn't live with himself uh, without the idea, without knowing that he had like thanked the woman for like giving him something to live for, which is like a tall order for a book, <laughs> like, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, but it does speak to the immediate and wide appeal of it mm-hmm. um which I, even i was kind of surprised by doing a little bit of research because like you get in the book and even from some of our response when when we put the schedule up 
and it does seem like you know it's a book that's spoken to a lot of women who have like a real affinity for reading because that aligns with Francie Nolan the main character and it's like mm-hmm. a buildings roman so it's like about like growing up and um you know navigating life as a woman and it's like oh it's all but it also has this other like cachet of like portraying America at a certain time and New York as this big you know American city that is a metaphor for American life and things like that yeah I have this this chunk of a contemporaneous New York Times review. Mm-hmm. Um, the publishers choose to call the book a novel, yet it is hardly that. There is little story or plot as the reader encounters it in the average novel. This is rather a stringing together of memories beads, and the workmanship is extraordinarily good. This is autobiography. Above all, it is a faithful picture of a part of Brooklyn that was mostly slums and misery. The picture is softened by almost poetic handling. Hmm. So it sounds like it's doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's a quote from Smith in an essay saying, I read so many stories and novels whose locale is claimed as Brooklyn. All were disappointing because they were about a city I didn't recognize. Brooklyn is a town of dark mystery and violent passes and gentle ways. There are astonishing customs and rituals of living hidden away from the outsider. Well, I am a Brooklynite. I know of these hidden things. One day I went out and bought a room of paper and started to write a novel about my city. Do you think it's like... (laughs) It's like when you do a TV show shot in New York, but you're trying to make like part of L.A. look like it's <laughs> yes. New York. Like whenever you write a book about New York, you're actually writing it about L.A., but you've kind of dressed it uh-huh. up to look like and New Smith York. And Smith is like, no, the gas grates. Nobody, there's no, there's never steam coming out of the ground. There's no alleys in New York. I'm going to write a book about it. I'm Betty Smith. Um, <laughs> so let's take a quick break, Andrew, and then I'm excited to dig into I, what you just said is really useful in terms of it maybe Thanks. not being a novel, but being an autobiography. Uh, so I want to dig into that, but we got to take a break first. So, okay. See you in a bit. Okay. Bye. Hey, Andrew, guess what? Hi, Craig. What? Overdue is brought to you this week by Care Of which can help you maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best today and supports you long-term. Care-of is hassle-free, which means they will ship you vitamins and supplements in pre-portioned packets that help you stick to a routine, which is important. Uh, Their stuff is quality. You can go on their website uh, and look up their research and their sourcing on all of the products as well as uh, the reasoning behind how they are proportioning them. Uh, And they have an easy five-minute online quiz that asks you questions about diet, lifestyle, and health. Uh, so you can address your specific wellness goals. I took the quiz. It's actually really straightforward. It's mostly about like what type of exercise do you do and what type of lifestyle do you have and what do you eat and things like that so that it can recommend some vitamins that might fit into your life. Uh, I was What vitamins fit into your life? Uh, vitamin, I know. vitamin D. Um, okay, that's a good that's one of the big yeah, ones. Yeah, magnesium. Um, I didn't need iron, but I was like poking around in their shop and there are iron supplements readily available for folks who need those. Um, if you, the listener want to try out care of stuff, uh, and for 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the code overdue 50. Again, that is for 50% off your first care of order. Go to takecareof.com and enter the offer code overdue 50. Craig, thanks for telling me about those vitamins. I want to tell you about some learning. Please do. As you know, Craig, the times, they are uh, not great right now. (laughs) Especially if you've got kids at home who are trying to adapt to the difficulties of remote schooling and learning. Uh, If you need a little extra help, our sponsor, Varsity Tutors, might be able to help. Varsity Tutors delivers free live enrichment classes taught by experts that make learning fun. Fun! They have hundreds of free online classes that are guaranteed to enrich your child's educational experience. Uh, Varsity Tutors has you covered for all your back-to-school needs, from one-on-one tutoring to self-study tools to homeschooling resources. And uh, Varsity Tutors has a 4.9 out of 5 satisfaction rating on Trustpilot. Craig, can uh, you looked up some classes for me. Can you hit me with some of the classes? You know, they've got stuff like Society of Sudoku and Fun, where, you know, the Ooh. math fanatics and puzzle lovers can all come together and solve some, some problems. They've got uh, Introduction to Japanese, Basic Art Theory, Beginner French Class, uh, Biology Boot Camp. Is that where you, le- is that where you learn to kiss? French class? Probably not. 
we probably shouldn't elaborate on that, but you could also take history detectives where you <laughs> explore historical time periods by pretending to go back in time to solve a mystery. That all sounds really great, especially the kissing one. To reserve your spot in a free class, go to varsitytutors.com slash overdue. That's varsitytutors.com slash overdue. Give your child the confidence and keys to success today at varsitytutors.com slash overdue. Andrew, can you read that thing about the book that you said earlier that was smart? <laughs> you got it, bud. The thing that somebody else wrote yeah, that I'm <laughs> quoting to you. Okay, cool. Uh, the publishers choose. This is from a New York Times review of the book uh, after it came out. The publishers choose to call the book a novel, yet it is hardly that. There is little story or plot as the reader encounters it in the average novel. This is rather a string together of memories, beads, and the workmanship is extraordinarily good. This is autobiography. Above all, it is a faithful picture of a part of Brooklyn that was mostly slums and misery. The picture is softened by almost poetic handling. Sure. Okay. That all rings very true to me in my experience of reading the book. Um, the I was talking to you before we recorded, uh, making some comparisons to like Dickens because of how it portrays this like interwoven community of people like you know, working their way through poverty. Um, but I, I honestly came away from the book thinking like, oh, it's actually very similar to something like To Kill a Mockingbird if you removed the dramatic like courtroom drama parts. Like, you know the parts of To Kill a Mockingbird where it's like, hey, this is a family just like growing up together. Right, yeah. If you, if you remove the narrative arc from To Kill a Mockingbird <laughs> yes. and just leave the anecdotes. And, and what if the anecdotes have an additive quality to them that builds up to a to a young adult's life from say 12 to 18 with some flashbacks to when she's a kid and it just becomes like a portrait of her but then her family but then her community around her but it doesn't have a like a doesn't have a ticking clock like it doesn't have a uh start with her graduation and then zoom backwards it doesn't have a oh we gotta do this before the big game like it doesn't have something like that <laughs> gotta put on a show to save the rec center <laughs> no, there's there is not any of that um and because it is so clearly based on her life um it seems like there is just what she sat down and said i've experienced a lot there's a story to tell here I'm just going to write it down and like change the details where I need to and keep the details that I need to. Um, it It's like it's messy and doesn't moralize, I think, is what really dis- makes it distinctive from stuff like Dickens, which can have that like let's give an unvarnished view of what uh, like disparity in resources looks like in our society um but she is not here to be like but if only this everyone would get ahead well yeah because that, that is that is sort of interesting because she she grew up in poverty she dealt with poverty her whole life but then also like as an adult she benefited from um from things like the works projects administration yep. like the new deal era yep like bureau that that helped uh, people who had been put out of work by the Great Depression find work like building stuff. Yes, and and not just building stuff, but also like writing things. Like she she was like part of some of her work in the arts was funded by the Works Projects Administration, which now feels completely impossible to me because people would be insisting on running it like a business and complaining about why it was losing money. <laughs> I will never not be mad about a thing I saw on Fox News in the late two thousand aughts where someone was yelling about cash for clowns and actors I actually knew who had been given a grant by the government were being dragged on national television. Cash for clowns. Because God dang it, their art had been funded and it was clowns. <laughs> Gosh, I hate it. So there, there's like that bit of yep. it. Um, there is a, there's a quote from a, another New York times piece in 1999, kind of a retrospective. Sure. Um, it talks about so so one interesting fact I found about the book is that the original manuscript was like a thousand ish pages, which oh by the gosh. time 
it was published, it had been about like halved, but, um, even, even so it is very long. And, uh, this is, this is from a Robert Cornfield piece. Uh, the book's determination to fill in all the details to get everyone and everything in and to follow its heroine through adolescence leaves it shaggy. Uh, the intensity of uh, Betty Smith's recall provides the book with its graceless but sincere sentiment and style. Mm. So I guess like pick a choose your own adventure here. Like pick a pick a thing about this book, a thread that you want to pull on. And I guess we can follow it through the rest of the thing is like, it, it, it's detailed uh, depiction of Brooklyn. You, we can just follow uh Francie Nolan's journey. Like what do you, how do let's, you want to handle let's this? Let's follow Francie, but I will give you the image of the tree uh, at the beginning of the book, just to give you a sense of the language also. So Francie Nolan uh, 11 years old, living in 1912, I believe, lives with her family in a Williamsburg tenement home. She loves to read. She reads like a book a day. I think her plan is to read every book in the library A to Z in order. Um, Dang, she should start a podcast. <laughs> she could be a podcaster. Uh, and she likes to sit on the fire escape outside her building, which has, which is like in the shade and wrapped up in this big dirty smelling tree but it's a beautiful tree because <laughs> of the book um she says the one tree in francie's yard was neither a pine nor a hemlock it had pointed leaves which grew along green switches which radiated from the bough and made a tree which looked a lot uh looked like a lot of opened green umbrellas some people called it the tree of heaven no matter where its seed fell it made a tree which struggled to reach the sky it grew in boarded up lots and out of neglected rubbish heaps, and it was the only tree that grew out of cement. It grew lushly, but only in the tenement districts. So, as you alluded to earlier, the tree is a metaphor for Francie, for the people of Brooklyn, for the American dream. And uh -huh. the book, honestly, like, I was expecting that to for the book for a 500 page book to weigh on that like lean on that metaphor more than it does and it honestly like doesn't um it's not that blunt or or you know it's not like trying to jam that down your throat it's like here's this fancy tree and we're going to talk about it and then we're going to move on um sure but so she lives with her family and uh here's like the nuclear family that we need to know her dad johnny uh is in the waiter's union he is a singing waiter, Andrew, which means that he, he is this like fine Irish lad who has a beautiful voice and he always like sings while he's serving. He works like very Cold Stone Creamery vibes if you want to tie it <laughs> yes. into your, your life experience. A little bit, yes. Um, and he, uh, he does have a serious drinking problem, uh, which becomes a big point of contention throughout the book it gets worse over the course of the novel at one point early in the book he says i drink because i don't stand a chance and i know it um he and his wife katie nolan got together pretty young and the whole having a family thing really threw him for a loop and he does not really react well because i think he is portrayed as this like kind of romantic irish exuberant creative figure um and the responsibilities of manhood and adulthood do not suit him, uh, so it kind of drives him to drink. Um, but Francie loves him. He calls her uh, prima donna all the time and is very sweet to her. Uh, her mother, Katie, is a cleaning woman who is really like the breadwinner of the family. Uh, she's very pragmatic. She is somewhat steely by necessity. She comes from a family of strong Austrian women, Um I don't I don't remember about Johnny's family, but I know that Katie, their family emigrated to the United States either when she was an infant or like just before she was born. So it's very mm -hmm. much like and this is a, a hallmark of the book is like um, what one generation is able to provide for the next and like hoping that your kids will have it better off than you, um, which is very you know, early and mid 20th century American dream in terms of literature, certainly as that's a thing that people still feel today. Right. Right. Um, Whether they're justified and the, yeah, hanging on to that hope or uh -huh. not. 
Um, based on the way that we as a society have chosen to invest our resources. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and Fran- <laughs> Francie and Katie, they do get along as mother and daughter, but they are also very similar in a lot of ways. And so that it does lead them to be probably a little frostier to each other than uh, they would. They both would hope. Um, also because Katie, uh, Francie has a younger brother, Neely, who is like a year younger than her. He's a very scrappy boy. He takes after his father. He grows up to be a wonderful piano player. Um, and he hangs out with the boys in the neighborhood and he's just like a good kid. He doesn't like Neely. I don't think if I'm recalling correctly, never gets like a standout scene or anything like that. He there are some scenes throughout the book where he and Francie are like left alone together and it's actually really sweet. Um mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised that there's no like big again, because it's not a book with like plot machinations. She or like big set pieces. Yeah. Are there set pieces or are they just not like big narrative? There are explosions. There are memorable chapters. Some of them are big and there are memorable memorable events. Um on the order of, to carry forward my To Kill a Mockingbird comparison, on the order of, yo, that time Atticus had to shoot that dog, or, uh-huh. oh, the first time you experience grief, or uh, it's a lot more, it it's more momentous than the Atticus dog thing, but it's usually drawn with that amount of care and, like, bracketed okay. off as a thing. Um, and so the whole, the book is divided into five books. I love saying that out loud whenever we read a novel that's broken up that I way. Know, right? Um, and the first Sections. one, yeah, the first one is super chapters. Is a real like, hey, let's just give you a lay of the land. Here's the family. So everything I've just kind of recounted is introduced in the first book. We get this routine of how they scrape by. Uh, you know, Katie works a lot. Uh, Johnny works whenever he's not too drunk to, and whenever there's a job for him. Um, the kids do a lot of like gathering up junk and like selling it to pawn shops and then they divvy up the pennies that they get. Uh, the family has like a coffee can nailed down in a closet that they like put pennies in every day. Like they put at least a nickel in it every day. Um, mm-hmm. And every night when the kids go to sleep, they read one page of Shakespeare and one page of the Bible. You know, okay. those are the two books that you have to yeah. read. <laughs> uh, Katie's mom uh, we get this scene a little bit later in the book. Katie's mom is like, listen, I didn't know how to read when I came here. I still don't know how to read. You know how to read. You're better than me. Your kids will be better than you. You got to read them good books. You got to make sure they read. I hear Shakespeare's pretty good. And of course, there's the Bible. So page of each every day. Go for it. Uh, I don't know what I would choose. Maybe the Shakespeare in the Bible. There's probably other books you could pick, though, too. To have fun? Yeah, I mean... Calvin and Hobbes. A page of Calvin and Hobbes every day. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the Silmarillion, the Bible, and Shakespeare. Okay, that's good. Um, The the real Bible, the fantasy Bible, (laughs) and the drama Bible. That's good. I like it. Um, And... How about, like, a Dave Barry book? Well... One page of a Dave Barry book every day. I love it. Which Dave? And that Barry really book? like it's any of them. Just that would be that would be the hardest to stop at just one page. I think. Yeah, you'd probably end up reading a you book a day. Laughing so yeah, hard. It's true. Yeah, true. Um, mm-hmm. And we just get like a lot of the oh, these are the stores that she has to go to on the weekend. They can only get so much food. They have to haggle to get. They can't buy full like cow tongue. They just get like the little bit at the end. Um, from oh, the butcher man. that really is that really paints a picture because yep. cow tongue is already what you buy if you can't yep. afford the better cuts uh-huh. and to only be able to get the bad part of the bad part of the cow is pretty rough. yep and it the there's like one little uh again going back to like the kind of artistry of her recollection she talks about how the family always has coffee around and it's like kind of bitter but they do mix it with condensed milk when they can and uh, Francie remembers like one every meal she gets a cup of coffee and she's like 11 I don't remember if I was drinking coffee when I was 11 I don't think I was but she's has a cup of coffee and she doesn't always drink it and she can pour it down the sink if she doesn't want it and uh, Katie gets in an argument with her sister so she's like why are you letting your kid just pour coffee down the sink she's like listen she can do that if she wants 
and Francie feels it as a like it's one little bit of like I am allowed to waste something like I am mm-hmm. there is something that we have excess of which we never have and I will <laughs> if I don't want to drink this coffee it means that I have control over what I am allowed to have um and so you get this kind of setup for this family and you know Francie's going to be your main character the second book is uh, much more focused on the parents. It like zooms back in time um, and the beginning of their relationship and how they came to be together. The thing, of, and this I don't know if it's true about Smith or not, but there's some setup to their families that does like, this book has a strong realist stretch to its attempts to portraying poverty and things like that. But like Katie's family is a bunch of uh, very strong, driven women um, who are all drawn to like men prone to larks and failure. And uh, Johnny's family are a bunch of men, most of whom are prone to larks and failure and kind of die young and don't, you know, are, I think like the book are, is like they're weak but creative or something. And there's sure. something to the like deliberate balancing act of those portrayals that like could be true, but also feels like making history rhyme a little, like trying to um, deliberately like make an argument out of people in your life. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see the, I know um, Betty Smith had issues with her stepfather and he may or may not have like, I sexually did see that. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I could see on, on her, on Francie, the, the, like Francie's family's end, a desire to portray a family of women who, like what, like what you said. You yeah. Know, it, it seems like the, the roots of that could be in, in Smith's lived experience. I can't really speak to the other thing. No, but. no, but it just, it feels like purposefully neat and, and symmetrical. Uh, or or something like that in a way that is like there are elements of this book that despite its realism are the novel and that doesn't usually you see that in like the way it's plotted and in this it's a little bit more in like the style of how these characters are rendered sure um and the main sec the main things we learn in this like second book are setups for a bunch of stuff that's going to get paid off later um, the way that the two that the two parents Johnny and Katie like started, they got they got together very young in their late teens. They got married. They were like working there. I don't think it was a dream job, but they were having a lot of fun being overnight janitors at a school like together. <laughs> and they just like that's hang the kind out. of job that is fun until you have literally anything else <laughs> in your life that you need to do. Yes. And of course, she gets pregnant and Johnny freaks out and starts like developing his drinking problem. Um, And when she has the kid, which is Francie, he kind of wigs out and is told to go away and forgets to go to work that night. And there's like the school bursts a pipe and like a bunch of stuff freezes. It's the middle of winter and he ends up losing his job and it's a whole mess. Um which of course like only makes him feel worse about his whole situation. Uh, mm-hmm. And so Katie is having this kind of crisis of like, how am I going to be a mother? How am I going to provide for my kids? And that's when she gets that big pep talk from her, uh, from her mother that I talked about earlier with the, the coffee can in the closet where you save money and you read to your kids so that they will be, they will be more educated than you. And education is a spine of this book. Like, we talked earlier about Betty Smith's accomplishments despite not getting her high school diploma or her college yeah, diploma. Yeah, right, her sort of unofficial but very impressive educational and, history. And that yeah. is all reflected in the story of Francie. Like Francie, mm-hmm. uh, in book three, after they have moved to a new apartment, it's a few years before the beginning of the book, but we're still kind of playing catch up. Um, and she likes school, uh, she ends up finding her own, like a different school out of her district be- that is like better and nicer. And she convinces her dad to help her go there. It's a real, 
Johnny is a real slick customer because <laughs> she like wanders into a different part of Brooklyn and is like, this school is beautiful. I want to go here. Dad, can I go here? And he literally like forges a note using a mailing address from a, a house in the district and is like, right. hey, this is where we live. My daughter's transferring to your school now. And he's like, listen, you can't get in trouble because if you get in trouble, they're going to set a lender home to a different house. Yeah, and she doesn't. She does very well. But see, in another book, that, that there would be sort of a, I don't know, like a like a principal or a vice principal who, uh-huh. like, who is really really has it out for her, and is like, I'm all, I'm gonna get you one of these days, Nolan. And then the <laughs> whole show is kind of about a series of close calls. Uh-huh. Where the principal is always like she knows something is up. She's gonna get she's gonna get Francie, but she can never quite figure it out. This is not that book, unfortunately. That would be a good fan fiction though. Ooh. A shrub grows in the Bronx, my Yeah. <laughs> there is in this you man, um speaking of the like this book is broken up into a lot of historical anecdotes. There's a whole meditation on vaccines coming into into the school chapter and the kids all needing to get vaccinated before they go to school and the government kind of like failing to make that clear and useful to these generations, most of whom are like first generation immigrants um, and like families who are scared of what they are. But also they're like, but you're making us send your kids to your school and now you're making our kids get. And it's like it's an indictment of that communication, which is pretty cool on Smith's I part. I can see why on paper it would feel good to be skeptical of that. Yeah. It would feel right to be skeptical. Of and that. and where the I was really like surprised by where the this little scene went, because. Bet uh I almost said Betty Francie. She's like, you know, <laughs> seven, six, and she's scared of what's gonna happen to her. They waited a year to send her to school so that her brother could go with her so that he wouldn't be home alone while their mom needed to work. And so the the two kids have to go get vaccinated together. They're both very scared, so they go play in the dirt for like an hour first, just to like make mud pies and be scared about it, right? They they go to the doctor by themselves because their mom can't get off work. They're covered in dirt. And the the doctor is like really clearly upset with this kid for being filthy. And Francie looks at the nurse and is kind of expecting the nurse who she can tell is from Williamsburg, um, has an accent that is like, oh, her family came from Poland. So like maybe this nurse will understand where I'm coming from. Um, and will like correct the doctor for calling these kids filthy. And the nurse actually says, uh, isn't it terrible? I sympathize with you, doctor. There is no excuse for these people living in filth. And then the next paragraph is I th- what I think is like the crux of the novel. A person who pulls himself up from a low environment via the bootstrap route has two choices. Having risen above his environment, he can forget it or he can rise above it and never forget it and keep compassion and understanding in his heart for those he has left behind him in the cruel upclimb. The nurse had chosen the forgetting way. Yet as she stood there, she knew that years later she would be haunted by the sorrow in the face of that starveling child and that she would wish bitterly that she had said a comforting word and done something towards the saving of her immortal soul. And then... No no editorializing (laughs) there. And then they give Francie the vaccine and they're like, okay, your brother's next. And Francie says, you don't have to tell him. Besides, it won't do no good. He's a boy and he don't care if he's dirty. Um, and they're like, oh, my God, I can't I can't believe that you could hear us the whole time. You don't have to tell him he's dirty. <laughs> like, yep. whoops. Yow. Whoops. Sometimes kids pay attention. Yep. Uh-oh. Um, so it's like passages like that get to uh, Smith as a, a woman in the, in the 40s kind of looking back on injustices systemic injustices i guess even though that's not like the the book dances around how i don't i actually should probably not walk back what the book is accomplishing because it is doing that type of critique pretty explicitly Uh Mm -hmm. um but then like the rest of this book is her kind of growing up um 
the big event, as we talked about earlier, like does this book have big set piece moments? It doesn't build towards it, but amid the like, oh, Francie's 13 now. She's, you know, kids in the neighborhood are talking about sex. Like, what's that about? And then it does a like, oh, no, there is a like child murderer on the loose in the neighborhood and he does attempt to come and take uh Francie at one point which I honestly was surprised by I thought it was going to be like this is now just about communal sex panic or something uh okay. but it actually is like a really kind of scary action sequence where Katie ends up like mortally wounding the guy who is trying to you know assault Francie Jeez. yeah <laughs> really? well because like Johnny had been like very illegally like relieving the night watchman at the jail or something or like at the ba- mm-hmm. uh, at the bank because the guy had a gun he was like well I'll like hang out by you and like so you can go make sure that your wife's not cheating on you this is definitely what's happening in the book and yeah no that's it's important yeah work. I'll watch your post while you go home and make sure your wife isn't cheating on you um bank uh, schloff man and he's like but I need to borrow your gun because there's a murderer in our neighborhood and he's like okay and then that's the gun that checks out <laughs> gun that uh, Katie uses to save Francie. Um, and it's just like that doesn't really get unpacked over the course of the rest of the book. It's like it's a thing that happened. It was scary. Um, and then we move on. Um, yeah, it's like the difference between some set pieces are also peaks in a narrative. Yeah. Like that's the purpose yeah. of them being set pieces. And then others are just like. Here is an an anecdote that is memorable amongst all the other anecdotes. Yes, and and take like taken as but it doesn't but it doesn't they don't really give the like the book a particular kind of shape at all, right? Well, I think it gives it a thematic. That it's a good example of um, if you look at the book as a young woman's life from eleven to eighteen, like a your first encounter with this type of fear and with this type of violence in the world like that's going that that is a thing that is out there and and can be part of one of these stories and it just so happens that it's not the only thing in her story right it is not just about that um but the novel is about a lot of the firsts that Francie encounters in her teen years um everything from like i said before when she's eight or nine going to school, but then also um, you know, this happening, her first job, um, her father does end up passing away uh, while he's very young. It is not explicitly that he drank himself to death and they do kind of haggle with the doctor about whether or not to put that on his death certificate. Um, but uh, Katie has just informed him that he's going to have a third child and he like goes on a bender Um but then claims he hasn't been drinking the whole time because he's so scared and he like dies of pneumonia or something. And it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and so the, the book from there on out is like, okay, the family has to regroup. How are they going to survive? Uh, the kids are going to have to work. Francie is this wonderful student who has this amazing talent for writing. Um, what is she going to do if is she going to forgo school which like again the whole book is predicated on she needs to get a good education um and so she ends up working her brother does go back to high school i think before she does and she ends up taking college classes um the i will share this cool interlude with you andrew i thought about not but i will share it um, I'm so happy when you choose to share <laughs> cool interludes with me instead of keeping them to yourself. So when she um this this cool interlude is just for Craig. <laughs> Andrew, stop listening. All right. Just tell people I don't. <laughs> um I was really like just fascinated by the press clippings bureau that she goes to work for, which is a yeah, job I that read, could only I was, exist back then. <laughs> Yeah, as I as I was reading about the book, like I, I try not to read, yeah, sure, stuff about the actual narrative, but because this book kind of resists having yeah, a narrative, sure. I just like read examples of different vignettes that were particularly memorable because that's how people talk about this yeah. book, and this this was one of them. So yes, yeah, yeah, the like model press clipping bureau where she goes and 
And what do they do at this place? Why why could it only exist in this at this so time? So what they do is they take all of the newspapers from around the country. They buy copies of them. And they have clients that are like, hey, take out all the articles where like I'm mentioned or my business is mentioned or these specific things get mentioned and cut them out. This is like the the Bureau of Googling. It is. It's the yes. (laughs) Some of their clients are like actors who want like reviews collected and things like that. Um, There's a whole interlude in this that ends up unraveling this entire company where a man uh, who's like kind of oddly dressed, who is the biggest client, he's like the big fish of the client list. He has been asking for information on like the Panama Canal and other like keep in mind that there's a war almost on and he is like asking for all sorts of interesting information and then like two guys with briefcases show up and like ask for a bunch of specific files and it is implied that maybe this man was a spy like a german spy that they were collect that he was i read an article in the new yorker called why mark zuckerberg should read a tree grows in brooklyn <laughs> <laughs> and it 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 took this anecdote and was like, listen, you can't be an objective, like, source for information. It's impossible. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, money will corrupt the purity of your enterprise. And really dives deep on the ethics of this press clipping bureau amidst a world war. And what if this man was a spy? And I was just. I can't not think about it in the same way that when I think about the movie Big, there's a like he has to wait several weeks to find out where the arcade, the magic arcade thing is because he has to go down to the Uh Bureau of Information and a lady has to look it up. So he has to be an adult until that lady does the research. (laughs) Um, But what it what it thematically does also in the book for Betty Smith is that now like reading which is this big passion of Francie's and she's very good at it and she's learning all the time she's actually kind of like worried that this job is gonna spoil that for her it's the like she's doing the things she loves but maybe not in a way that's for her that's a real fear yeah that's that's a thing it's a real thing um and i i feel like i'm i'm shortchanging a little bit about like what is very charming about the book overall is the way that smith will like have dialogue in a scene and give you like really line by line access to what a character is thinking and instead like uh they say something else so it's like i like in that doctor stuff it's like Francie being like oh i wish the nurse would say this i really wish that she would say this i wish that she would say this but instead here's what she said um and smith does that very effortlessly and similarly, that skill is deployed in like the wrap up of this press clipping stuff where she's excited to be getting this high paying job. The company is solely unraveling because of this maybe spy nonsense. Um, <laughs> and she is concerned about like ever getting to go back to school ever again um, because she does have to help provide for her family, um, which is otherwise going to like, you know, they're going to be out on the street because they can't make it work. Um And the back fifth of the book is a little bit about two different men that she ends up meeting. One very ambitious wannabe lawyer man named Ben Blake, who I think is the stand-in for George Smith. Um, She meets him taking some summer college courses that she is able to pay for, even though, and like she can take, even though she doesn't have a high school diploma because she's just paying for the classes. Um, and he's like, Hey, I'm going to go to Michigan and be a lawyer. And then I'm going to go to a Midwestern state and be a lawyer. And then I'm going to become the governor of that state after I'm a representative in Congress. And like Ben Blake kind of cool out a little bit. Okay. Okay. Ted Cruz. (laughs) Why don't you calm down? (laughs) And he's like, you're going to come with me because you're very smart and you'll meet me out there and it'd be great. Uh, and she likes him. They have a connection. I like your ambitious, slimy lawyer, politician, <laughs> like fast talking. Yes, I guy don't voice. think he is yeah. actually that slimy. He does help her a lot. Um, he's a nice boy, but he, she mostly remarks on how ambitious he is. She does meet a slimy man named Lee Reiner, who she like meets through a coworker. He is her first real gosh dang crush. Uh, oh, no. They spend a whirlwind forty eight hours together in new york city apparently you could go to a dance hall and you have to pay like 
five cents a dance to like be on the dance floor. That seems huh. wild to me. A thrif- thrifty dance. <laughs> but but he's a serviceman. He's going to go off and be in the war, so they only had to pay half. Um, but he is... That seems less convenient. <laughs> Two and a half cents for a dance? Well, like you pay five, I mean, you, I guess you and your partner both get to dance. I guess. Yeah. That's how they get you, <laughs> That's how they get you. Um, and there's a part that really just stinks where he claims that he is not in a relationship, and he definitely is, and he goes back to pennsylvania uh before he's supposed to leave for europe and she writes him a letter being like hey i had a great time like it's lovely it was lovely to meet you i love you so much and uh his wife writes back to her and is like nah Uh we just got married and it was mean of him to do that to you but i love him he's my husband yeah it was it was mean of him to do that to you and i think he's and i think he's just the best (laughs) Uh, so she does end up like with Ben later and there's like a, an analog to Katie's relationship with Johnny where Katie, you know, talking to her daughter is like, listen, you're going to, your first falling hard for someone will always be the measure by which you compare every other relationship. Just like know that and like it sucks, um, but it's going to be what it's going to be. And that that sure. doesn't go away throughout the rest of the book. Um, and then the the kind of wind down of the end, the family does serendipitously kind of get saved by this policeman named uh, Michael McShane, who is way older than Katie. He noticed her in like the middle of the book when we there's a whole chapter Andrew about Tammany Hall and the corrupt Democrats. And the unions <laughs> and like Johnny's like really deep into union politics. And Katie's like, this sounds bogus. And he's like, nah, it's great. They take care of everybody. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's like a, a real flash of a moment where this sad police officer like notices Katie and is like, oh, huh, that's interesting. Um, he does come back at the end of the book. His wife has passed away. He has been, you know, taken care of this family from a distance a little bit. He proposes to to marry them and uh this is almost exactly what happened in smith's real life you know a a public works employee did come in and become her stepfather and her youngest sibling takes that person's name which happens in the book as well um and like he has some wealth and really kind of lifts them out of it but like there's i think there there is a paragraph from katie where it's like I'm doing this because I want companionship. I know I could make it. Um, This isn't like the end of It's a Wonderful Life where like if this rich man doesn't swing through, we're screwed, Um, Mm -hmm. which saves the book from having that kind of like deus ex machina element, even though it's in there, which is like, I don't know. That's a tension in the book, I think. (laughs) Um, But... Katie ends up kind of like coming full circle on herself as a young woman and she's leaving New York to go off to Michigan um, and is like saying goodbye to another young girl who's reading on a fire escape at the end. And it's it's very moving. Um, mm-hmm. So that's like the the arc of the book. I wanted to make sure that we talked through it. There's a lot that I did not talk about because it's a big, long book. Um, sure. But... The the buildings Roman element of it as a like a series of snapshots of youth is really powerful. The 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 depiction of working poor stuff is kind of interesting. As we said before, interesting to think of her as a as a, L, a beneficiary of the WPA um, and the Federal Theater Project because like the book does have a lot of bootstrap stuff. There is a lot of like, Hey, we just have to work really hard and we will make it and we will make a better life for our kids. But there's Mm -hmm. also a lot of like interesting community aid elements to it. Where like one of the most striking is they hire these sisters that live in their building to, to do like piano lessons for the family and they can't pay them that much. Um, But the sisters like, actually don't get paid enough to live and so sort of how they get by is when 
whenever they're doing a lesson, people offer them some like a snack and some tea for hospitality. And like half of their meals every day are just like the things that they get through those lessons. Um, huh. And then like later in the book, the family gets some like a nice meal for Christmas. Um, and just the ways that neighbors and different side characters like take care of each other over the course of the book is really what gives it a strong sense of like community and stuff. Um, okay. Anything else from the like reviews or reading that you did that we didn't touch on yet? Um, you know, I don't think so. There's another bit um, from the cornfield. Yeah, hit me. Review, and I'm wondering if this is this is present in the narrative of the book, or if this is just something that he is uh, kind of projecting onto Smith based on the way that the book goes. Um, he says it is nothing less than the port than a portrait of the artist as a young girl, and Smith set out not only to record a young life, but to show where a writer's ambition and will come from. Is a story of triumph over adversity. So mm, mm. I guess that is talking more about like Smith's journey through Francie's journey, but does that like shake anything loose for it you? It does. There's uh, another thing that I think is probably a reason why people f- look back fondly on this book is it is a book by a writer about how I grew up to be a writer, right? So like... And also Brooklyn. <laughs> and Brooklyn. <laughs> it's got, it checks a lot of boxes. Um, but like there is an element to... Um, how did how did this love of reading turn into a love of writing and what type of writing and reading is like worth your life and time and so towards the end of her like grade school um, which is different from high school it's like, it's like she has an eighth grade graduation at some point but or sixth sure. grade I don't, I don't know what the grades are um, but she was getting all of these like A's in her English class for writing what were considered like beautiful stories by her teacher. And she, after her, you know, father, um, I think it's after he passed, but yes, it's after he passed. She starts trying to like write a lot of stories um, that in spite of his shortcomings, he was a good dude. So it like requires her to really do what some of the book is doing, which is depicting the realities of their poverty and stuff like that. And, the teacher starts giving her C's for writing like depressing stories. <laughs> and <laughs> and she's like, you know, what should I write about? And the teacher's like, well, one delves into the imagination and finds beauty there. And she's like, well, what is beauty? And she's like, truth. And Francie's like, well, my, my story is truth. And she's like, no, by truth, we mean things like the stars always being there and the sun always rising and the true nobility of man and mother love and love for one's country. And the, the next few pages are Francie just being like, this is bogus. Like, I need to write about my life and my world and accurately depict it. I should get ace for that. <laughs> So that is that is interesting because another part of that cornfield piece talks about the rest of Smith's work mm. and describes the other three books as plotting in intelligent, oddly melancholy, but they lack the neurotic impulses and driven recall of her first. Huh. So basically, like these books are bummers. Yes, I think the set tomorrow will be better, especially like tackles. Also poverty, also Brooklyn, but is considered to be a downer. Typically, like reviews of it were much more mixed than Mm. they were of Tree Grows in Brooklyn in the first place. And so it's it is interesting that she is talking about being chastised for being a bummer. Yes, through this character that she created. Yeah, she the specifically the teacher is like, why would you write these sordid stories? And she's like, what does sordid mean? She's like, oh, dirty, like filthy. And Francie takes immediate offense. It's like, do not use that word to describe like my family and my life. Like we are not dirty right. people. Um, and I wonder if what Cornfield is, is responding to is like in the later books, she may not be explicitly recalling her own experiences. So it sounds like he is like, well, it, it lacks the pizzazz of recalling your childhood. And maybe she's not as good at plot. Maybe I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but I think the the meditations on the use of stories and where stories come from is probably what stands out to people. Um, and then I also just think that like it is very worth mentioning. I was very I mentioned how high I was on Aunt Sissy earlier in the podcast. 
Aunt Sissy rules. She has like a good ten <laughs> percent of this book. It's not a full ten percent, but she, she of all of the background characters, quote unquote, she kind of gets the most screen time. She is a a. I think the book describes her as a bit of a loose woman. She has a lot of men okay. in her life. She does wind up getting married three times. Uh, she never fully divorces any of them. Um, she just like says that they didn't happen in a church, so they don't count, and moves on to the next guy. And okay. all she wants to do is like have a kid, and she has multiple miscarriages and can't. Uh, ultimately, there's a whole story about her adopting a kid from an Italian family and lying to her husband and saying that it's hers. And like, he doesn't believe her, but he's not going to say no. And Sissy uh-huh. is a piece of work. And she, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but she does like love the kids. She defends Francie from a teacher at one point. Um, and she's just like a very vibrant character who changes the dynamic of all the scenes that she's in. Um, and a lot of the other side characters do the same, like a good, a book that is mostly a, a series of connected anecdotes lives or dies by the characters that get introduced in those anecdotes. And, uh, Aunt Sissy, uh, Uncle Willie, whose horse like hates him and pees on him all the time. And then like his wife is actually a better milk deliverer than him. Like that's a cool story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who runs the bar, who takes care of the kids after their dad dies is a cool character. Like she does have a knack. And if these were, it's clear that these were probably real people from her life that she has a a whole amount of affection for. Um, So as you're moving through the Brooklyn of this book, it is populated with people who are fundamentally decent, save for that guy who needed to get shot because he was a child murderer. Um, Sure. But like, except for that person, yes. Like, even the guy who's running a Christmas tree store, where every year he gives out free Christmas trees, uh, when he on like December twenty fourth, by he will throw them at kids, and if the kids can catch them without getting knocked over, they can take them for free. What? <laughs> and he even there's probably some obscure law against that specific. Yep way of distributing things right? and right before like, he throws the tree at francie betty smith's like gotta get inside this guy's head and she like zooms the camera in his head he's like maybe i should throw this tree at this little girl maybe i should just let her have the tree for free but then all the other kids will want trees for free and i can't live that way it's just it's a lot of really colorful interesting characters um that anchor this like oddly meandering in the best way narrative through this girl's life um mm-hmm. so it it is it is impressionistic in its depiction of the community of brooklyn at this time but it is also i think kind of realistic in the sense that like not everything is a cause and effect that moves one character into the next action on the next page um sure and yeah i don't know the family despite their issues they like they do really love each other and it it isn't about them coming to blows over things and and johnny's death is very tragic and i don't know i liked this family a lot and i was glad to see that they were mostly okay at the end that's yeah you know i i think we we were talking earlier like i think this book probably hits a lot of different people in different spots depending on when they read it in their life like if you are a girl francie's age while you're reading the book i'm sure it will hit you very differently um yeah and it will stay with you very differently but i think it transcends being just a a work of historical fiction or a work of autobiographical fiction i think it's it's the best of both of those so sure cool that's all i got that tree sure did grow in Brooklyn, though. What else do you think grows in Brooklyn these uh, days? Weed. We- <laughs> weed and websites. Those are the two things that come out of Brooklyn that I know about. Weed, websites, trees, breweries. There are breweries there, yeah. Uh, high-rise apartment buildings. Unfortunately, yeah. Those are the things, okay. I think. Well, there you go. That's the tree grows in Brooklyn, Andrew. I think that's all. There's there's a lot more to say about this book, but we got to wrap this podcast up. So, that's true. We do. Um, let's get out of here. 
if you, okay. the listener, I'm waiting, on, <laughs> I'm waiting on you. But I'm sorry, you were like in the oh. car, just like, can you just turn the key and get us like? You're like messing with the radio, and I'm like, can I? I can do this, but you have to start. Uh, if you, the listener, have fond memories of a tree grows in Brooklyn, you want to share them with us, send them in overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at overduepod, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, I recently did one of our What You're Reading posts on both of those. If you need some book recommendations aside from what we're reading, which, like, honestly, what else do you need? But. Um, thanks to everybody who responded to that recently, including Greg, Toby, Leanne, Steve, Claire, Ingrid, Lexi, Amber, Melody, Kevin, Mario, Kara, Casey, Morgan, Jessica, and a whole lot more. Andrew, folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Just go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website up there. We have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, our RSS feed. You can find us on Spotify and Stitcher and anywhere else you get fine podcasts. We have an email inbox. Please email us, OverduePod at gmail.com. We like to get an email. Yeah. We do. Uh, we also, you probably said that, right? Yeah, but you can say it Is again. That part of the what email. you said? I wanted to emphasize it again because I feel like we aren't getting as many emails lately as we usually do. Um, I was just thinking about it. Uh, we have a new listener page up there where you can find episodes that we think are good. Uh, and then also books that we have read and are going to read. Like last week, we read Eggs by Jerry Spinelli, which isn't about eggs at all, hardly. Uh, next week, I'm going to be reading Harvey by Mary Chase, which I am given to understand is about a rabbit of some kind. Yep. And it's also a movie with James Stewart in it. Yep. Um, and then this week, we are going to be recording our bonus episode for the month of August, which is still the month it is, I believe, on uh, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is the Hunger Games prequel by Suzanne Collins. We'll be releasing that to patrons early and then the rest of you later yeah that is the title of the book someone wrote us a message being like did you make that title up like no that's no it's it's the it's the one what it's called uh that's quite a ballad it is all right andrew the engine started i'm putting my pedal to the metal get us out of here all right bye everybody try to be happy vroom was a headgum podcast.